Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, December the 8th, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And the preferred way to consume the podcast is over at Apple Podcasts. Download it, leave me a review. We're also on Spotify, so don't forget that. Tons of places you can get the Talking Mets podcast. Welcome in, everybody, to this chilly Sunday morning here in New York. The winter meetings, it's pretty appropriate because the winter meetings are here, and unlike some other off-seasons, it seems like the activity has picked up, and hopefully, and I know the media is hoping for this, so that gives them something to do, because last year was a complete dud at the winter meetings, that while they're out in San Diego, that you get the Jared Coles and the Anthony Rendones and the Steven Strasburgs out there signed. Uh, for us here, as we talk about the Mets, I think um, it's going to be certainly less sexy I know that there may be some fans out there holding hope after the news that came down on Wednesday that with a potential new ownership group or owner coming into play that the Mets will have some more money to spend. But I'm going to caution you on this, uh, and I think after really marinating on the podcast we did, I believe it was, what, Wednesday we did the podcast? Yeah, it was Wednesday, that a couple of things came to mind as I really had a chance to sit back, and, and I hate to do podcasts like that quick instant reaction because you really want to to do a good job on what I'm trying to do here. Um, you really want to be able to, uh, 
you know, really sit back and get a bunch of different perspectives and think about it and research. And you really couldn't do that in the matter of time that Howard McDell and I were, were going on. But I think in general, we did a pretty good job. So I don't think that any of the news coming out was a surprise. And you saw some reports that Brody Van Wagenen wasn't surprised by it. He certainly, I don't think, was told back when he took the job in October of 2018 that they were looking to maybe... Uh, divest themselves of majority ownership, the Wilpons. But I think as the year went on, and I caution everybody, when you hear the Mets lost $120 million, I wonder how much of that is accounting games or how much of that is real. Uh, baseball teams are not cash cows or profit centers. And I think throughout the whole Steve Cohen news and, and way that people were uh, talking about him, I don't think Steve Cohen's sinking $2.6 billion or something where, somewhere in the neighborhood of that thinking that he's going to get this outstanding investment return in comparison to the market. No, this is a medallion. This is a talking point. This is prestige. This is like guy likes to collect art. This is a very expensive piece of art that you can make money on, uh, but, for, but, but it's more of a social thing uh, and more of a community thing than I think it is an investment, to be quite honest. Although, if you look at what the Wilpons invested in buying this team back in 2002, they're going to make a nice, nice piece of change out of divesting themselves of majority share of this team, if that indeed comes to fruition, which was Howard's point on Thursday. So the thing here is this. I don't think that going into the offseason, or maybe late in this season, that any of this was a surprise to Brody Van Wagenen. I also look as the Mets' payroll winds itself out over the next two, three, four years. I, I don't see a lot of players on there. Uh, that have long-term contracts other than the Canoes uh, of the world, J Jacob deGrom and the Canoes of the world. So uh, the Mets, I think, are operating more uh, because of uncertainty, in my 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 opinion. Uh, that, I think that's where the issue is. I think anytime you have an ownership change, uh, you there is going to be that uncertainty during the transition. So you don't want to go bananas spending. So I think certainly you're looking at next year's spending being an issue, and it was an issue, and it was outlined as an issue all the way back in the GM meetings where the, the coding, the coding that Brody Van Wagenen uh, brought up there was creativity and value, which is, is code for saying, hey, we got to find players on good contracts that give us a lot of value or maybe assets out there that others are not looking at who don't think are good that based on whatever analysis that they're doing, that they think they're that, that the Mets think they could bring to the table. That's what you're going to see this week. So, this is not going to be a sexy week unless something drastically changes for the New York Mets. And I know that's going to bother you. Does that mean the Mets can't compete and win in uh, 2020? No, that's not the case because, and I'm going to tell you that in a little bit, I think there's some real undervalued players already on this roster that I see fans go out there and and look to trade or or not pay attention to. Now, the moves that you saw made this week, Brad Brock coming back. Good move. I like Brad Brock. In a three-batter minimum bull, bull, uh, league where the bullpen arms can't go uh, batter to batter, little concerning that lefties hit him well, but maybe that's something that was an outlier. Uh, maybe that's something they could work through. A little less of an issue, in my opinion, with a right-handed reliever than a lefty reliever. Jake Marisnik, I know everybody's going crazy over the prospects. Blake Taylor was an interesting arm, lefty arm. That had some good crossover splits. Uh, the guy, uh, young pitcher that was acquired for Ike Davis from the Pittsburgh Pirates many years ago. It's a little disappointed that he went over. But uh, Marisnik seems like a good clubhouse guy. Great defender. 
has some pop. Basically what I think they wanted at a Juan Lagares, maybe not as a starter, but as a guy that could give you 200, 250 at-bats. I see Marisnik as a late-game defensive replacement and a guy that could spell lefties like Michael Conforto or Brandon Nemo, depending on the matchup, more so Nemo uh, in, in that sense. I think it's what they really wanted out of Keon Bronxton, and, and they did not get. So those are the kind of moves I think you're going to see. I think the Mets are going to definitely try to go out there and get a starting pitcher of some value. Rick Porcello's name has come up. I'm not totally surprised about that. And, and then the real question is, will they splurge a little bit, or will they go straight value? On the bullpen, will they go into the Dylan Batances, Blake Trinan type of uh, uh, of bucket? Uh, a name that I'd like to look at, and maybe that's an interesting sleeper because I think I I'd like them to have a lefty that could cross over. And I know they have Justin Wilson, so maybe this isn't as important. But with the extra roster spot, the twenty sixth roster spot, maybe you get a second lefty. Is Francisco Liriano somebody that's they're they're interested in? I, I was very impressed with his numbers uh, coming out of Pittsburgh. Um, there's Steve Ciszek over there, Joe Smith, Colin McHugh. These are all names out there that I think uh, we should be looking at. Uh, hopefully they don't go straight into the bargain bin. You know, the Cody Allens, guys like that, that really have to rebuild themselves. And I don't mind inviting a bunch of those guys to spring training minor league invites, uh, you know, minor league contracts with a major league invite. And then similar to what they tried to do last year, and I think you'll see the Mets try to do this. They did it with Chase and Shreve. Uh, earn your way a spot on the roster, and you're going to have to spend some time down in Syracuse unless they have a better, more direct path with another club to the majors. So you're going to see those guys, maybe not all of them signed this week, but I hope that they're able to squeeze through this uncertain transition time some of their available, whatever that payroll is, available income, uh, to uh, really going into the bullpen and upgrading the bullpen. Because once you let Zach Wheeler walk, at least for next year, You've opened yourself up to some uncertainty with a spot in your rotation, and certainly that you wouldn't have had if you had re-signed Wheeler. Uh, you have David Peterson, you have Thomas Zespuki, you have Gonsalves. They just uh, they they grabbed off of waivers from the Twins, uh, a former top prospect, uh, just a month ago. That's another example of an undervalued or creative move or uh, undervalued asset. That maybe that's the direction they're going to go. So you have some interesting arms. Uh, you know, it was a disaster when you had the Chris Flexens and the Oswalts, uh, Walter Lockett. I'm I'm not sure what to think of him. It seems like maybe there was some talk that his utilization by Mickey caused him to have some problems. He wasn't pitched enough. Maybe he's not so much of a bullpen guy. Maybe more of a starter. I don't know. There's there's been some talk about that. So, you know, that's what you're going to get this week. That's going to annoy you. Uh, but uh, if the reports are true, I think in the long term. The biggest thing that's going to come out of, and Howard McDell has talked about this for a long time, and if there's one thing that should annoy you about the way the Wilpons did business, and it, it goes back to where they just didn't have enough money to own a team. Uh, they had a lot of money, but not enough money to own a team. Forget about New York. This would have been a problem anywhere, is that they really never were able to set a strict budget and tell their baseball operations department, this is what you have to spend. This is not new news. This has been going on for years. Howard was the first person to talk about it. You had to go move by move by move and then figure out what money was left. It makes it very hard to plan, and it makes it very hard to be nimble. 
which means you zone in on a few free agents. And then like one of the articles that came out, I believe it might have been a really good article in uh, the Times or the, yeah, the Times, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, New York Times by James Wagner uh, about the Wilpon family was uh, that, you know, basically in January, Fred would go to them and say, well, now you have some money to spend. Well, I needed that in November. Timing is of the essence when the hot stove is on. So I think that's the biggest thing. Now, what what I will say is I don't know if the decision on Zach Wheeler was straight about uncertainty about the ownership. I think because that's a more of a long-term commitment. You could have figured out a way to get Zach Wheeler some kind of you know AAV and, and make maybe the 2020 salary not be quite... Um, as as obtuse against the payroll as it was. Because if you go to 2021, 2022, you have arbitration-eligible guys like Diaz and Nimmo and Lugo and and and, and Ahmed Rosario and, and what have you. So you, you have guys coming out on arbitration that are going to cost some money. Uh, but you only have two guys, plus Jury's familiar. You got Cano, you got DeGrom, uh, and you've got uh, uh, Familia in 2021 that are you're committed to. Everybody else you could let walk. You don't have to offer them arbitration. You could, you know, you could you could just say, hey, we're not tendering you a contract, and, and that's it. If you really wanted to. So to me, the Zach Wheeler decision was as much about them not wanting Zach Wheeler and a long term commitment to Zach Wheeler than anything. And you have to remember when you get angry about this decision. And I wanted Zach Wheeler back, and I think if it was in the 60, 70, 80, even if it got up to $100 million, I really was open to the Mets and, and was hoping that the Mets would get aggressive there. Because he does have the ability to be one of the pitchers, uh, few pitchers that, that are out there that can pitch at the DeGrom number one level. Syndergaard could do that from time to time, and I think, and we haven't seen it as much, but I think eventually you'll see Stroman do the same thing. But I think the Mets looked at it. They looked at what potentially is coming down the road. They're going to have to pay McNeil. They're going to have to pay Pete Alonso. You know, J.D. Davis and Brandon Nimmo aren't going to be uh, cheap forever. Their payroll in 2021, if they project it out, they're going to have to start addressing some of their offensive players. That's only a couple of years away. So if you give Zach Wheeler $25 million a year, that's a big chunk to a pitcher who may be hurt, who's an injury risk, and they also are saying to themselves, I got to look at Syndergaard. I got to look at Stroman. Who is my best bet? I can't pay four or five of these guys, no matter what the payroll is going to be. And you're not going to dedicate $100 million to four pitchers. Actually, it's more because the Grom's going to get up to like $36 million after 2020. This year he's at 25. Next year he's going to be at 36. The year after in 2021. You know, you're going to be looking at you know 50% of your payroll in four or five guys and the most risky assets out of the whole bunch. So uh, I don't I don't think the Mets really ever wanted Zach Wheeler. And Andy Martino has said this back uh, as early as July after the the Stroman deal, and he was right. He was right on the money when they got Stroman. Wheeler was gone unless he accepted that one year, seventeen million dollar, uh, you know, offer. The, you know the 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 you know that 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 was not going to be realistic. I don't think he unless his market collapsed, which because of the way that Cole and Strasburg, how expensive they got, and how many teams are betting on him and saying let's make a bet that he's going to be more Degrom than he's going to be 
a fourth starter or or a, an inconsistent third, they're going to look past the games against the Yankees and the Nationals and the Braves. They're going to look past some of those things. They're going to say, you know, I'm going to get a guy that's going to give me 180 to 200 innings at a three and a half, four ERA, and I'm going to probably overpay for that. And in this day and age, that's probably for some teams that don't have Degrom, don't have Syndergaard, don't have Stroman. That's a good move. And if the Mets didn't have those other guys, I have a feeling they would have been in the same boat too. So I don't don't get fooled that the Mets couldn't afford Wheeler. It was a problem for next year in the getting him into the payroll. They could have made they could have started to look to trade people. There's Martino even has said that they could have dumped Familia's salary potentially in the summer. They could have figured out a way to get him in there and make it work. They didn't want to. They didn't want to do that. That's my belief. Now, I'm not saying that the ownership and the payroll and the money that if Steve Cohen or another owner was in charge of the Mets that that it was going to be the same. I don't know if they would have advised them that this is the guy that I'm going to go out and 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 put all this money in. I don't know if that's what they really believed in. They may have ways of looking at it and it's an, it's again as as it marinates. I'm not going to be the guy that trashes Wheeler on the way out because I thought and I still think that it's a better better risk to go after the starting pitcher than to figure out these bullpen arms because these bullpen arms are all trining, batances, seasick, all these guys. I, I can't tell you if they're going to be any good. I know everyone's going gaga over the Braves signing the three big arms. I don't know if they're going to be any good. They could break down. Look at Mark Melanson, who they have now. He was signed to a big contract by the Giants. It never really panned out. It's hurt, inconsistent, you know, not the same pitcher. And he was a great pitcher in Pittsburgh. So as I go away, I, I caution you on a couple of things this upcoming week at the winter meetings. Number one, you're not going to be in the sexy end of the pool. The Mets have warned you on that. Brody's warned you on that. They're going to be looking. They believe they have a good offensive roster. They have a core of pitchers that they could go out and compete with. They're going to go and look to upgrade the bench, the defense, maybe get themselves another better version of Jason Vargas in the back end of the rotation. And I think, I think where the money will be spent or the bulk will be trying to bring in those relievers. Or I could be wrong and maybe they're going to go and and maybe the the way the pitching market has gone. And the Porcello, I know everybody's turning their nose up at him. And I'm not the biggest Porcello guy either. He's a guy that's going to give up more hits than innings. His numbers are not going to jump off the page. But I caution you on this because I was listening to Casey Stern on the MLB Network Radio. Sometimes, you know, he talked about how he's pitched big games for the Red Sox and uh, came out of the bullpen in the postseason. I I caution people who, and I haven't watched a lot of Porcello, you know, I'm a National League guy here, a guy who could compete and be in the rotation for the Red Sox and the American League East, forget the Cy Young year, even though I think it's an overrated division in some ways because you have the Orioles and the Blue Jays not competing, and the Rays are always trying to, you know, make more with less. That's there's still ballparks that are offensive ballparks. The Rays have been good for years. The Yankees at Yankee Stadium, you guys all know what that's all about. Fenway Park is not always an easy easy place to play. It's a DH league, so now you'd be coming into a non-DH league. Uh, sometimes the numbers don't jump out, but maybe the pitcher's a little bit better than the numbers. And he is not, and I repeat, he is not a replacement for Zach Wheeler, and I would not try to sell you on that or even suggest that. The Mets are looking at, just like Andy Martino said back in July, and you could disagree. Maybe you don't think Stroman is as good. 
And there's debate on that. But Strowman's your new Wheeler. Porcello or some other fifth starter, maybe Lugo competes for the job, is your better upgrade version for Vargas. And everybody else slots where they are. And your hope is that DeGrom continues to be as close to DeGrom as you get. I mean, there was a bit of a drop-off at times this year, but he was still a Cy Young Award winner. You hope that Syndergaard returns more to 2016 form and that Steven Matz could give you more middle-of-the-rotation performances than stinkers in the fifth-spot type of rotation performances. And you saw more of that this year, and you saw health. And then you got some young arms like Peterson, like Zespuki, Gonsalves, uh, Walter Lockett, uh, Walker Lockett, Walker Lockett, I say Walter, Walker Lockett, uh, guys like that that you hope uh, could pop into the rotation and, uh, and, and, and get you, you know, maybe eight to ten starts when you need them because of injuries and double headers and, and what have you. So uh, that's what your week is going to be, and you're not going to like it, but that's what it's about, and, and I think that's how they've planned on building this team because of the uncertainty with ownership and because they also think they have to prepare for the future. And if you, you know, go to Cots contracts. There are going to be some big, if these guys perform, Alonzo, J.D. Davis, Nimmo, McNeil, Rosario, if they continue to perform and grow as offensive players, they're going to cost some money. And you're going to have to pay them. And then, you know what? The last thing you want is, God forbid Zach Wheeler is hurt year three or four of that contract, and you're sitting on $25 million of dead payroll. Uh, You don't want to have to say to yourself, shoot, I'm going to lose Brandon Nimmo, who's, and we'll get to that in a little bit, who's a pretty darn good offensive player, pretty big piece to this offense because I, you know, I got this money tied up in a pitcher that I should have known was risky. So, and look, next year, Stroman's a free agent. Maybe they feel Stroman's better. They've done this analysis. This isn't just them waking up one morning doing this. I know everybody in Twitter and the media and fans think they know better. You don't. You're not in an operations department. You're not in a baseball ops department. I'm not either. We all have opinions. All I try to do is be as balanced and logical on both sides of the fence with that opinion so that we could all just understand what we're seeing here and not just to re- react emotionally. Hey, big show uh, today. Uh, the guest today is going to be Kurt McKnight. He's an author of a book about Dale Murphy and why Dale Murphy should be in the Hall of Fame. He'll join me in a little bit, a little bit later. Uh, the Modern Era, uh, com- the, the Veterans Committee is voting on the Modern Era. There's a bunch of names up for the Hall of Fame, and we'll get to that. And that'll be announced, I believe, tonight at 8 o'clock. I think that's 8 o'clock Eastern, which is they're out in San Diego Pacific time. And we'll get into the Hall of Fame. Not a lot because it's about, uh, obviously, the Mets and the winter meetings and the transactions. But it's really interesting because I think depending on how this Hall of Fame vote for the Veterans Committee goes – I think you have a chance of seeing an impact on some former Mets making the Hall of Fame, most notably Keith Hernandez, but I also wonder if it will help Carlos Beltran when he's eligible in a couple of years uh, because of the fact that you have guys like Dave Parker and Dale Murphy and Dewey Evans uh, potentially being voted in who uh, have careers that, honestly, Beltran's very similar in some ways to a Dewey Evans. So. Anyway, uh, we'll get to that with Kurt McKnight, author. He'll, he'll talk about Dale Murphy. We'll get some Hall of Fame talk in just a little bit. But let's take a quick break. When we return, I think you guys, a lot of you I'm seeing out there, are underrating players on this roster. You're ready to dump them and trade them for relievers or to upgrade certain areas of the team. And I don't think you realize what you have. We're going to take a quick break. We'll talk about that right after this. 
2-2 to Nimmo. Breaking ball, drill, deep right field. Verdugo going back, and it's out of here! Nimmo does it again! A pinch hit three-run homer, and the Mets lead 4-1 in the ninth. Two. And J.D. drives one toward the left field corner, and the Mets win it! Conforto comes home with a winning run! J.D. Davis with a walk-off hit, and the Mets rally for two in the bottom of the tenth, and they win it 4-3! All right, we're back listening to the Talking Mets podcast, our winter meetings kickoff, and like I had said in prior podcasts, I don't know how quickly before this goes stale with the with the way the news comes out, but uh, hope that there's there's some good uh, content here that could take you through the week, and uh, we will do reaction to certain moves if if necessary. Hopefully, there'll be new moves to react to. Uh, we'll definitely do a podcast on the way out. You know, I don't know if we'll wait till Sunday, maybe Thursday, Friday. We'll do something along those lines. But tons of podcasting coming to you over the next couple of days. This is just the kickoff. Of everything, so I, I go to the mailbag here and I look at our friend who uh, emailed us, Jared Talbot, friend of the show here, listener of the show, and Jared, thanks for emailing. And this is the first time I think I've heard from Jared. And uh, in his email, he brings up uh, the Mets going after center fielder. Now I believe he sent this to me before the Marisnik trade, but he talked about bets being unrealistic, and I certainly wouldn't give up a ton of assets for a guy that I don't have signed long term. And uh, he brought up Byron Buxton, and that's an interesting name to play center field. Uh, but injury prone, and and you know, can he be like Aaron Hicks, where the Yankees got Aaron Hicks for a song and a dance from the Twins, and then he developed into a very useful offensive player, maybe. But the the crux of of Jared's email was bringing up Dom Smith and whether the Mets could trade Dom Smith for uh, someone like Clint Frazier, and I don't think the Mets and Yankees would do that. It'd be interesting. Do the Yankees value Dom Smith enough that they think that they could bring him in? Put him at first base. Luke Voigt, uh, you know, is uh, is more of a DH type uh, potentially. Better defensively, Dom Smith swing for Yankee Stadium. Send Clint Frazier, who's been a bit of a disappointment over to the Mets. I, I just feel like Clint Frazier, even though I know he's shown some flashes of really high level offensive uh, talent, uh, I I think he's a better player. I think he's a better prospect, and I think you do that because you could potentially flip him for more. I don't think the Mets and Yankees would do that. And right now, that's what ties me into where I'm going because I think Jared's email ties me into where I'm going here and why I wasn't as crazy. as Marte was an interesting name, Starling Marte in Pittsburgh, but I wasn't crazy to rip apart the farm for him. I certainly am not for going after Mookie Betts without knowing that he's going to sign. I mean, if he's going to be a free agent next year and you have a new ownership coming in, you can address that then. But what I'm really saying here is you have two very important offensive pieces on this roster. Elite offensive pieces. And both of you guys, and it's not Dom Smith. Because to me, Dom Smith is a guy that I think teams are going to question whether he really is an everyday player. You go to July when he's starting to play fairly regularly in July before he got hurt. His OPS was under 500. He was he was in a massive slump. Now... He had played off the bench, and he, he had hit so well from April on, on forward. But Dom Smith, to me, was at his best when he was coming off the bench and spotting players. And I'm not sure he proved last year, as much as he had a good year, that he's an everyday player because he didn't play every day. 
And when he started to play every day in July, he didn't really hit us the, the same level. He had the big home run against the Twins and everything like that, but he didn't hit. So I'm wondering if there's any trade value. I certainly wouldn't give him away. And I certainly think he's a good bench piece to have that could spell Alonzo, could obviously get a big hit off the bench. You saw that the last game of the year with the big home run against the Braves. And maybe be able to spot in the outfield if you need him to be. I'm not sold that he's an outfielder, but you know that's another conversation for another day. But the two names that you guys, I see it on Twitter all the time. I see it sometimes in mailbags. I see the conversations in the media. Uh, is J.D. Davis and Brandon Nimmo, do you guys realize how good offensively, when these guys have played every day and have been healthy, how they are? In 2018, Brandon Nimmo, and if... You know, and I'm again, I'm going into advanced stats here. And I'm using runs creative, which weights, it's a rate statistic, which credits the hitter for the value of their outcome. So this is telling you who performed offensively but had impact driving in runs. In 2018, Brandon Nimmo was sixth in all of baseball, American League and National League, in runs created. He was ahead of Paul Goldschmidt, Manny Machado. Anthony Rendon, Freddie Freeman, Bryce Harper, Nolan Arenado, Javier Baez. I mean, he was elite. And then if you go wins above replacement, which just, you know, factors in the defense and the total value, he was top 25, top 30. Now you go over to J.D. Davis. And, and, and actually, let me step back before I go to J.D. Davis. Nimmo got hurt, and he has a serious inju- injury with the bulging disc in the neck. And and that's something that the Mets, only the Mets know how serious it was and what have you. But that's something you got to watch for because that could come back. And that's, as you saw earlier in the year, that's debilitating. You have bad neck, can't move your neck, have pain in your back, he's done, he can't play. That's why he hit a buck 35 when he got hurt. But when he came back and showed that he was healthy in September, he was pretty elite. He was a top 10 offensive player again in runs created. Get you the exact numbers before we 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 uh, we, we end the segment. Top ten in runs created um, in September. What he played every day. So when he plays, and he plays every day, he produces at a high level offensively. Now J D Davis, the same thing. J D Davis, when he started to play, which was around July first every day, started the year at third. Frazier came back, and I know they were bouncing back and forth. You know, Nimmo was in, Nimmo was out, Nimmo was hurt, whatever. J.D. had some bench time. But from July 1st on, he, uh, J.D. Davis, was 11th in all of baseball in runs runs created. That was better than Mookie Betts, George Springer, Anthony Rendon, Anthony Rizzo, Josh Donaldson, Juan Soto, J.D. Martinez, better than Alonzo McNeil, who for the year were top 10. Aaron Judge. So, right under your nose, and this happens all the time sometimes here. It's like the old, you know, you laugh Jason Bay. Mets had Jason Bay as a, as a, as a minor leaguer and dumped him for nothing, basically. And then they got him back on the back end when he wasn't that good, where he was on the decline. You have great offensive players. To the point where I, and I said this yesterday on Twitter, Ioannis Cespedes is a sunk cost. I think we all know that. But even if he can play or produce, I think he's a guy that you're only going to hit two to three days a week out of in a bench bat 
You have a 26-man roster now, so you have an extra spot. He's not going to play, in my opinion, over J.D. Davis every day. It's not. Now, J.D. did talk about going from third to the outfield. That caused some issues, and that may impact his offense because his defense is going to be something he's going to have to work so hard on and put so much time in. Don't be fooled. Defense can affect offense. It seems like when he had a, and that July 1st really ties into him being in the outfield and being given the outfield, his offense was better. So certainty in where he plays is important. And I think that's what spring training is all about. And I would not be afraid, seeing what I see is putting McNeil in left, JD at third, and going with that. And then, you know, McNeil could play second when Cano, because Cano's going to need two or three. Cano's going to get time off. That's going to happen. I think Cano and Cespedes are almost going to play off each other if Cespedes is even healthy to play enough. Cano is not going to play more than four times a week. He's at, this. The plan was to play him about 120 games, 130 games when he came here. He probably complained his way into more. And if he wants to be productive and elite, he has to do it in a much more modified sample size. He's in his mid to late 30s now. You cannot, you cannot expect him to play 155 games. He has to understand that. But you have these two, and I, I see these two guys. I see fans will trade them for a middle reliever or Nimmo's a fourth outfielder. Well, if he's a fourth outfielder, you got a darn good offense. You got a real darn good offense because he's not a fourth outfielder. You're all wanting Mookie Betts. The guy you have on the roster may be a better run producer than Mookie Betts. I mean, it just amazes me to to see how, and the numbers. I'm not looking at any any proprietary numbers, and maybe the proprietary numbers don't put him nearly as good. I don't have whatever the advanced proprietary brews that the Mets are putting together in their department. I don't have it. Brandon Nimmo was uh, in in September of 2019 when he played every day. Brandon Nimmo was. Was that war? Hold on. I'm trying to see wins above replacement. I'm bringing it up. He was 16th in wins above replacement in all of baseball in September. Best best win shares out of any member on the Mets roster when they were running, competing for a playoff spot in September. It tells you something. The valuable player had a runs created of 150, runs created plus of 159. That put him 17th in all of baseball in runs created. How was that? Better than, uh, let's see, uh, better than Aaron Judge, better than Paul Goldschmidt. Now, again, it's one month, so there's a sample. Better than McNeil, of course, Pete Alonzo, Bryce Harper, Cody Bellinger. I'm, I'm giving you big-time names here. And look, I've got a season's worth of data. And I've got small sample size. So to me, these are the guys you go with. That's why you should feel good about the offense, an offense that averaged over five runs a game in the second half. So this week at the winter meetings, I don't think they need to go out and score a big deal for a big offensive player. I think they have them here. I think they've got to get, they brought Marisnik in, they got to get those component players. I'd love for them to go out, and I think that that's, a, that's what I didn't bring up earlier. I think getting a defensive catcher, that's not such a big downgrade offensively from Ramos or maybe somebody that allows Ramos to be maybe a 100-game guy, 90-game guy. And I think Jason Castro, as a lefty who hits righties well, might be that guy. 
that gives you a platoon that offensively and defensively upgrades you, but offensively gives you the best of both worlds. So that's something interesting to look at, and we'll continue to see that. But J.D. Davis, Brandon Nimmo, uh, very underrated. Dom Smith, I'm still not convinced he's more than a bench player. I certainly, to answer Jared's uh, email bag, I certainly would trade him for Clint Frazier because I think Clint Frazier has more uh, value as a uh, as an asset than Dom Smith. And I wonder how much value he has. And I don't know if he'll be traded this week because I don't think the Mets are going to give him away if they feel he could help them off the bench. I don't even know if you'd get a decent reliever or a decent starter for him. Again, I don't know how the rest of the league values him. I feel he's a bit overrated. I think he's a great guy. He was great on the bench. Great clubhouse guy. Good bench piece. But that doesn't mean he's going to get you a lot in a trade. So keep that in mind. All right, let's take a quick break. When I return, Kurt McKnight, author of the new Dale Murphy book. We're going to talk the Hall of Fame, the Veterans Committee, uh, Modern Era Ballot. And uh, that'll be announced later tonight. It'll be interesting to see. And it will have an impact on whether or not certain Mets make the Hall of Fame uh, down the road. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Here is the Veterans Committee. Now, this is actually what will happen. These 10 names will appear before the committee, and before the winter meetings, they get together, and they will figure out, who are we voting for? You need 75%. And what we are going to do right now is reenact the Veterans Committee, since we have such an august panel with us today of pundits, people who study this sort of thing. I'm not being sarcastic. (laughs) You are, but it's okay. I'm being slightly sarcastic. By by the way, we're going to be enacting it. They're going to reenact what we're going to do. That's a good point. If they could, we'd be in better shape. So let's go through this intellectual exercise right now. We asked all of our panelists, I'm joining in as well, to vote for four. You can vote for as many as four. We didn't know before we actually did this who would vote for whom. So here we go. Here's our vote. Ken Rosenthal going Marvin Miller, Dale Murphy, Ted Simmons, Lou Whitaker. I went Evans, Miller, Thurman Munson, Dale Murphy, Costi Kennedy. Only goes three. Interesting. Dwight Evans, Steve Garvey, Ted Simmons, you couldn't find a fourth. All right, John Heyman, Garvey, that's the one Garvey vote. Don Mattingly, are you the one Mattingly vote? Yes. Dale Murphy and Dave Parker, the one Parker. You're the anomalous vote, by the way. However, we did get three out of four, that's 75%. Dale Murphy has now been inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, at least our version of it. So there, we came up with one. We're back, and joining me, Kirk McKnight, author of the book, uh, new book out, Batting Clean, Why Dale Murphy Belongs in the ba- in Baseball's Hall of Fame. Kirk, uh, big Dale Murphy guy, perfect timing as the modern era ballot with the Veterans Committee. I believe, I was trying to find the actual time, I believe tonight, Eastern time, about 8 o'clock, is when um, it'll be announced. Dwight Evans, Steve Garvey, Tommy John, Don Mattingly, Marvin Miller, Thurman Munson, Dale Murphy, as I said, Dave Parker, Ted Simmons, and Lou Whitaker are candidates, and Kirk's here to talk about Dale Murphy, and I'm sure we could talk about some of these other candidates. Kirk, welcome to the program. At the Voices of MLB is your Twitter. How you doing? I know it's early there on the uh, West Coast. Uh, pleasure to have you. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm doing great, and uh, I have I did not get woken up by this phone call. I've been up for an hour or two now, and I don't know. I Maybe I should have... Uh, if I'd have known it might not be until five o'clock Pacific time, eight o'clock <laughs> Eastern, maybe I would have slept in a little bit. <laughs> there you go. But um, so you you make a case here, and I've been crunching some numbers up. 
you know, the Hall of Fame has become very complicated, not just because of the 90s and steroids. That's the easy, lazy uh, narrative. It's also because the game has changed. Uh, sim- now, in the, in the past, baseball was baseball, but similar to the NBA, the NHL, NFL, as the eras go on, the game changes and it becomes harder to judge. So this modern era, I mean, I grew up, I started watching baseball in the mid to late 80s, so I don't have as, as much of a perspective on these guys as some of the guys in the 90s and certainly the turn of the century. But you believe Dale Murphy's a Hall of Famer. I've spoken to him a couple of times on this program. It's been a while. A great guy. Uh, I'm not sure if it's just Dale Murphy or there are others on this ballot that you believe should be elected tonight. Give the listeners an idea of your position on Dale Murphy and, and maybe the modern era ballot in general. Well, my position on Dale Murphy is that the guy, I mean, the guy, if you if you look at his body of work in the 80s, uh, it would be a no-brainer for him to make it into the Hall of Fame. Unfortunately, too many people focus on the way his career ended last two or three years with injuries and his numbers, uh, you know, plummeting, batting average-wise especially. But if if we're discussing, you know, Hall of Fame consideration, you can take a 10-year body of work of Dell Murphy's uh, from the 80s, and you can really see that he was one of the best players in baseball uh, behind the plate, in the field, on the base paths. He, his body of work should speak for itself during the 80s, but unfortunately too many people focus on the way his career ended, and and it's unfortunate because it gave him no uh, – no street credit, I guess, or whatever you want to call it, for those 15 years on the regular ballot and the first time around on the modern era ballot two years ago, uh, you know, they didn't vote him in then either. But that's the way I feel is that if you if you take those 10 years, especially the numbers that he put up on such a bad and abysmal Atlanta Braves team, you could probably say to yourself, if this guy actually had a supporting cast, these numbers would be way more than they are. And we're not talking borderline numbers anymore. We're talking no-brainer numbers for the Hall of Fame. And that's just the unfortunate way that Murphy's career panned out, you know, just not having people on base when he came up to bat and not having people knock him in when he reached base. And and those things really will add up over an 18-year career and, you know, turn what could be 1,500 RBIs into 1,266. And and what could be 1,400 runs scored into 1,197. So that's that's kind of Murphy's plate. You, uh, it's interesting because you have taken up the candidacy of Dale Murphy. This reminds me a little bit. You're kind of the pioneer on this where, uh, you know, 10 years ago you had certain members, uh, like guys like you, authors, journalists, members of the media, taking up Tim Raines' campaign. Uh, the difference is, is I believe, uh, well, Raines was on the Veterans Committee at that point. Uh, you know, here he has, a. I mean, I don't know how they're going to select future here. You know, if he doesn't make it now, I mean, there's going to be other modern era ballots. Here's I'll, I'll lay out to you and I'll get, want to see your thoughts. Here's where I think he has a, a good shot. If you look at some of the hall of famers that are going to be voting, I'm, I'm on fan graphs now trying to get a, a feel of the 16 person committee where you, he's going to need 12. You got George Brett, yeah. you got Rod Carew, you got Dennis Eckersley, Eddie Murray, Robin Yount, contemporaries there of uh of dale murphy and 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 i just i'll bring up and and i'm not the biggest guy on advanced statistics in terms of building a team from from wins above replacement but it's a good way of organizing similar type of players 
if you just organize the 80s, 1980 to 1989, Dale Murphy's the 10th uh, most valuable player of that decade, ahead of Eddie Murray, ahead of Tim Raines, both Hall of Famers, Gary Carter, uh, who was a catcher, uh, Lou Whitaker, who's on this ballot and many believe is a Hall of Fame, Keith Hernandez, Dwight Evans, also on the ballot, Paul Molitor, a Hall of Famer, Ryan Sandberg, a Hall of Famer, Tony Gwynn, a Hall of Famer, um, Don Mattingly on the ballot a little further down, but he's, you know, he's, he's there as, as a top 10, uh, I guess, similar to Dave Parker, similar to, uh, you know, guys like Keith Hernandez. Uh, I'm trying to go look on this ballot. Um, uh, Ted Simmons, uh, Don Mattingly, his, his career dropping off when he went to the Phillies, I think in the totality will hurt him. So the real question will be, and it's really in the eyes of a voter, is a 10-year period of the 80s enough if you believe in longevity and a, and a period of dominance? Uh, the answer should be yes. When you talk in totality, which as you get more advanced uh, voters now, that are not necessarily in this group per se, uh, him getting into the Hall of Fame could impact those coming on the ballot in the regular voting who uh, – you know, you're starting to become big hall, I guess, is where I'm going as you evaluate Dale Murphy and Dave Parker and guys like Don Mattingly. You know, if these guys get in, it's going to have an impact if precedent has any kind of say with the regular voters. Right. And, I mean, you mentioned all the, the voters that are in the Hall of Fame that are on the committee. Uh, and <laughs> these guys played not in the same league as Del Murphy, for example, with uh, with Robin Yount and um, Rod Carew for the most part, and Eddie Murray, and uh, let's see, Eckersley for the most part was A's and and uh, and other things like that. But they knew, you know, they knew what he was doing. You got Ozzie Smith, who played in the same league as him. He's on the committee too. So that's what I kind of hope will be for those six personally. I hope that will ring somewhat with them to think of him as a competitor because I think a lot of the perspective I got in the, in batting clean is that, you know, they pointed out people like Hank Aaron and, and different uh, Nolan Ryan pointed out the things that Murphy did that a lot of people obviously have forgotten about over time. Uh, Hank Aaron commented on him going first to third on uh on a single and he says that's something you just can't teach and he says he's never seen anybody do it quite like murphy or as much as murphy did you know and nolan ryan talking about murphy as a complete player he even said that he can't imagine that joe dimaggio was a better all-around player than del murphy now i know this call is coming from new york and i know that there's a lot of ooh that just came out over you know proverbial background but uh you know, the, just the fact that somebody like Nolan Ryan could, could acknowledge something like that. I'm not saying it's true or anything like that, that I feel like Dale Murphy's in the same class as Joe DiMaggio. But for the fact that somebody like Ron, Nolan Ryan can actually make a comment like that, I think that has to carry some weight too. And I think the one thing on a positive with Murphy, I mean, gold glove outfielder. And again, I didn't it's a back-to-back MVPs. And let's not forget, and this is a thing easily forgotten, this is a guy who came up as a catcher. So, right. you know, to go and not only win a gold glove, but win a gold glove playing center field, uh, not easy. I mean, we've been talking about defense on this program with guys like, you know, local guys like Brendan Nimmo and J.D. Davis trying to figure out, you know, their defense 
going to support their <laughs> offense. Uh, and here's a guy winning a gold glove. Uh, you know, it's a, to me, this – and I think it, Harold Baines – I don't have a problem with Harold Baines making the Hall of Fame. I think what you're going to see now with Hall of Fame voting is you're going to have the Veterans Committee, which is going to be more traditional in the way that the voting used to be, which is gut and feel and what they saw. Nothing wrong with that. And then you're going to have, as the BBWAA evolves, more of a statistically inclined vote, which, let's face it, even a guy like me, I'm 42, I saw Murphy towards the end of his career, uh, you know, when he wasn't quite as good and being in New York, Atlanta was so bad that you're really not paying much attention. So you're almost going to have two Hall of Fames here. And I guess my concern is not Murphy getting in. It just muddies this so much because at some point, if Murphy gets in, if Dewey Evans gets in, and I think Dewey Evans and Whitaker, you got, they have strong cases. You know, not that he plays the same position. Now it opens up for Keith Hernandez. Uh, Steve Garvey gets in. I think it definitely opens it up for Keith Hernandez. So I'm very curious how this vote goes because to me, the only shoe-in I believe, and I'm wondering you know, if you agree, Marvin Miller should be in. I mean, that's – he tra- – you know – he did some, you know, the way he transcended the Players Association, the way he changed the game. To me, that's that's what the Hall of Fame is all about. Everybody else is debatable, and you can make an argument both ways. But to me, Marvin Miller's the one that absolutely, if if you told me there's one guy, you may not like hearing this, but you told me there's one guy that you have to walk away with tonight, Marvin Miller's the guy that should walk away with it. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I've already heard people say that Marvin Miller, just because he came so close the last time, as far as, uh, you know, Jack Morris and uh, Alan Trammell got voted last time, and Marvin Miller what, was maybe one or two votes, if at most two, but I think it was more like one short. And so uh, I feel that maybe has some steam going for him. And, uh, and yeah, a lot of factors like that uh, are taken into consideration. And that's and that's one of the reasons I, I feel Murphy should make such a strong case is because, you know, we're not just talking about his record and his uh, ability. We're talking about off-the-field stuff that that the, the voters claim they consider, you know, the sportsmanship, the integrity. I can't think of a better poster boy for integrity than somebody who did what they did on their natural God-given ability, that, you know, like Dale Murphy did. Character and contribution, two other things, you know, the, the Lou Gehrig Award – Roberto Clemente Award to me screams uh, Hall of Fame when you put it with everything else that Murphy accomplished. So, you know, the, like you were mentioned with Marvin and and Miller and the <clears throat> excuse me and the uh, Players Association, yes, those things should definitely come into account. You know, we're uh, players who do it on the field and 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 have that ambassadorship. Uh, that's what the Hall of Fame needs, and I think that's one of the main arguments I make for Murphy is that. He has an ambassadorship still. 26 years after he's retired, he is a face and 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 a symbol for for basically clean playing in youth, uh, clean playing just all across the boards because it just he you know he he tries to fight for the integrity of the sport, but not only that, just for the health reasons and the health ramifications about things like using steroids or things like that when you're young and how it just is such a detriment to the body. I think Murphy has done a a ton uh, over his post-career life in promoting those kinds of things. And those are the kinds of things that parents just 
want to be embedded into their kids as they grow up and, and take part in sports. And I think Murphy has done a good job in that. So, you know, think, thinking about Mark Miller and, and, and what he's done, I think those two go in that same boat as far as being some kind of ambassador to the game post-career. I'm going to give you the power. Now we'll play a little game of pretend here. If you were the one who was able to uh, select who was coming in, you, you could pick more than one um, out of that group. You know, I just gave you is Murphy the only one, and and who else would you put with Murphy if you had the power to make this happen tonight? Well, I feel like <laughs> I feel like the fact that Miller had uh, that many votes last time would put a little pressure on me to vote for him in this particular way. Uh, I think Lou Whitaker uh, definitely is deserving. I'm not sure if he's going to get in tonight or not. I think there's some talk about him, but. It is. I think it's his first time on this ballot. So some other people have said that with with it being his first time on the ballot, maybe next time he'll get on it. But uh, yeah, that's 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 about who I would put is uh, Whitaker, uh, Miller, and and Murphy. Uh, just looking at the other ones, they all had great cases. I think Steve Garvey presents a good case, but I I think just the mentality has just kind of gone away from Steve Garvey. I don't know. As long as I've been a baseball fan. I've known Steve Garvey is, you know, a great player and a competitor, but uh, I just think that, like, it goes that far and, and maybe no more, you know. Unless you're like a diehard Dodger and Padre fan, the talk on Steve Garvey just kind of stops. And, and that's that's unfortunate because I, his resume uh, as a player is amazing. And, and I, sit, I think Hall of Famer when I look at Steve Garvey, but uh, there's just – other factors that maybe people just immediately go to the front of their minds and they kind of uh, give them the snub, you know, but uh, looking at some of these players and, 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 and their on paper contributions, those three would, you know, those four I'd say, but I think, uh, I don't know. I, I'd like to think that the momentum is carrying towards Murphy this time around, you know, he's, there's been more articles posted about him, things like that. And I don't know, I just, I just kind of feel like some voters probably don't even have Garvey even in the forefront of their minds. If you uh, want to, you know, win, lose, or draw at Murphy tonight, if you want to get the book, um, it's $1.29 on Book Baby. You can use the code 8, H is in Harry, R is in Ron, D is in Don, is in Don Mattingly, T is in Tom, 6, and you can go to at the voices of MLB. On Twitter, it, you know, it's interesting. Before I let you go, you have written other books, The Voices of MLB. You've also done The Voices of Hockey. And when we have more time, we should probably get into The Voices of MLB in the future. But um, give the listeners a little uh, a bit of an idea about The Voices of MLB, maybe the hockey. You're into uh, announcers and, and kind of getting into that. So give them a little flavor of what they could expect with those works that you've done. Well, if you want a baseball tour of the ballpark, uh, via your best possible tour guide, which would be to me, the broadcasters. Uh, you should check out the Voices of Baseball. Uh, goes you stay, it takes you ballpark through ballpark through Major League Baseball, giving some of the most uh, memorable moments of these broadcasters' careers inside those ballparks, and you have plenty of history in there. Uh, you got seven Hall of Famers. Probably by the time the Ford Frickle uh, vote goes in uh, in the next few weeks maybe even have eight i've got three uh three representatives of the book that are on the ballot for the ford frick award for broadcasting so uh it's if you want to tour through 
the ballparks and, and, and know what makes each ballpark different and how the ball is played different and how the, the game is played different, check out the Voices of Baseball. And you'll get a handheld tour from people like Vince Scully, John Miller, Marty Brenneman, and New York's very own Howie Rose, John Sterling, and Michael Kay. Interesting. Those are uh, a lot of names we know. Well, Kirk, listen, you make a very compelling case. It's going to be fascinating because I think this is going to – I mean, the point of all this is to increase fun debate about baseball, especially in the winter months when there's no games. And what happens here I think is going to transcend into the BBWAA vote. And Dale Murphy, Mm -hmm. who I've spoken to, is a great guy. And uh, we'll see what happens. Be well. And let's catch up again, especially as the the Ford Frick and the Voices of MLB. It'll be an interesting segment to talk a little bit about baseball announcers so be well and we'll talk soon my friend Alrighty. all right thanks for having me on that's kirk mcknight of the voices of mlb on twitter at the voices mlb and the book is batting clean why dale murphy belongs in baseball's hall of fame let's take a quick break i'll react to this and we'll wrap up you're listening to the talking Mets podcast we'll be back with more right after this the Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. Interesting stuff by Kirk McKnight about Dale Murphy. Personally, uh, I do not think that Dale Murphy's a Hall of Famer. Um, If I had a choice to uh, have a ballot or I was the one submitting a ballot on this and I'm not, I'd vote for Marvin Miller. Uh, I'd vote for Lou Whitaker top five second baseman all time, and I'd vote for Dwight Evans. And I think Dwight Evans very underrated. If you go to Dwight Evans, uh, he's a top 100 uh, player with wins above replacement from baseball reference all time. And if you go to Dwight Evans' um, page, uh, here's a guy that hit for power, great defensively, winning, winning gold gloves, great arm, uh, on base guy, got on base, walked a ton. Uh, guy that really, you know, had uh, a long stretch from, I would say, you know, the late 70s, like 78, all the way to, you know, 1989, where he was an elite offensive player, a uh, 10-year period. And you could argue that it was Dale Murphy, but I think Dwight Evans, unlike Dale Murphy, unlike Dave Parker, did not drop off precipitously after the age of 30. I think that hurt a lot of guys. Now, the one guy, and I tweeted about this yesterday, and I'm kind of on the fence with this, where maybe I'm wrong, uh, Thurman Munson. Now, Thurman Munson had really, really good numbers for that five-year period right before he passed away in the late 70s. And if you really want to go by precedent, if Roy Campanella, who lost his career for different reasons because of a uh, be you know an, a car accident, and if Mickey Cochran and and Ernie Lombardi are in the Hall of Fame, guys I didn't see guys from the twenties and thirties, you really have to put Thurman Munson in the Hall of Fame. So I don't have a problem with Thurman Munson getting the Hall of Fame, and my gut tells me that he will. Um, but I I I'd, I'd have to see Marvin Miller get in before him. I'd have to see Lou Whitaker top five at his position. I know they say you know some fans were like, well he's a bit of a compiler. 
because uh, he played 18 seasons. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't quite know about that. Uh, and then I'll tell you a funny story about one of the players on this ballot. Because both Dale Murphy and Dave Parker dropped off after the age of 30. So I, I would say no to both of those guys. Uh, and Ted Simmons a, as well. Uh, Tommy John's on the ballot. And I, that's one of the guys where you and I both know if Tommy John played 26 years at the age of 46 and missed a full season because of Tommy John surgery, right? Uh, so he did, he did pioneer a surgery that now is revolutionary and a lot of players would have lost their careers if that surgery wasn't uh it didn't come about now the doctor dr frank job is probably the guy that is the hall of famer in this one but to to give tommy john credit and if you read the book the arm by jeff passan that surgery was dicey i mean it, 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 there was some there's some major complications in that and two years after that surgery in 1977 tommy john comes back and wins 20 games and finishes second in the cy young award and if he had not missed that season, he probably wins the 12 games, probably. He probably wins the 12 games and is at 300 wins, and we might, we might not even be having that conversation. So I don't have a problem with Tommy John making it, although I think that is the epitome of compiler. But you can also say that playing until the age of 46 having, maybe some say he had a rebuilt arm, so that's why he was able to do it. At the age of 33, he had a rebuilt arm. But there's a guy that won 20 games three times post-Tommy John surgery and pitched till he's 46, and at the age of 44, won 13 ball games in the American League for the Yankees. Uh, that, to me, is 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 pretty good. Now, I was I, when he was the manager, I believe it was the Bridgeport Bluefish, I was having a conversation with him, and I still have the recording somewhere. And he got mad at me, and he walked out of his office because uh, we were talking about Pedro Martinez at the time being a Hall of Famer. He's like, well, Pedro only has 215 wins. And I said, well, yeah, Tommy, you have 288 wins. And, I mean, here's the, 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 the devil's advocate. You were basically a 500 pitcher for your career. He was 13-11 and 11 on average for his career. You know, 330 ERA, which now gets you a nice contract, but... I mean, it's the same debate. I mean, Zach Wheeler could very well be 13 and 11 next year with a 3-3-4 ERA. And, and I don't know if he'd be uh, considered a Hall of Famer, although in the wacky world we live in now, who knows? So he walked out. He got mad at me. He said, this is over. I mean, I wasn't saying that I agreed with that because, I, again, I don't have a problem, but I always remember that. It was the first time I, in person I annoyed uh, a ball player, and he, uh, Tommy John was, was that guy. So I always remember that with Tommy John. A couple other quick hits as we wrap up here. Uh, as well. Number one, uh, if you look at Dewey Evans and you go back to that Red Sox team, because this connects to the Mets, Jim Rice, Hall of Famer, Dwight Evans, Bill Buckner, the Hall of Very Good, Roger Clemens should be a Hall of Famer. And uh, that's a tough team. And and I thought about it. I said, yeah, that's the Mets really, you know, Houston with that pitching staff and not having a home field advantage, which was ridiculous if you think about them not having home field advantage because of the way they used to switch year in and year out. I think that because of the, the Houston Oilers, the Mets had a – it was supposed to be their year, and they had to give it up. I mean, that's how ridiculous baseball was at one point. They almost cost the Mets because of, of stupidity. And, um, you know, they had it in the World Series, the Mets. And uh, if Bobby Ojeda doesn't get traded from the Red Sox to the Mets the prior offseason, I, I believe that Bobby Ojeda as the third starter on the Red Sox probably creates a big problem for the Mets. 
in that series because the real difference maker to me, yeah, the Mets were able to win six and seven facing Hurst and Clemens. Big deal. That is a big deal. But when they're down 2-0, it was Oil Camp Boyd and Al Nipper. And the Red, the Red Sox really couldn't go past Hurst and Clemens with anything of any kind of quality. And the Mets just beat up on both of those guys. Oil Cam Boyd because he wasn't really up for the big spot. Al Nipper because he wasn't very good. If you have Bobby Ojeda in one of those games, I wonder if the series is different. And I think it very well may be. You'll never know. So that's something interesting to chew on over there. I was also thinking about the whole Brandon Nimmo, J.D. Davis thing while we were in break after the uh, Kirk McKnight interview. And the one thing I didn't bring up as well is how I, I was talking to my scout friend out there on the West Coast who saw Nimmo play in uh, Colorado. And um, he said he thought Nimmo played Colorado's outfield pretty well based on his opinion. And hearing that, I was like, well, maybe with positioning and some work, I'm not saying he's going to be a gold glover or above league average. But if he could play league average defense in center field, oh, geez, I mean, that to me is is big. And I'll tell you what, if you want to play it even further, if you put Jake Marisnik out there in center as a defensive replacement, I think you, or, or even a guy that could play against lefties, J.D. Davis might not be as bad out there as you think. So, you know, to me, that's that's kind of, you know, uh, uh, an interesting thing to chew on going back to that debate. A um, couple of things I want to get here before we wrap up. Mailbag, a couple others. Uh, Chris Kamaj, and I hope, Chris, I said your name well, uh, sent me a beautiful thank you note saying he, about how much he's enjoying the podcast the last few months. I want to thank you for listening, Chris. Continue to listen. If you could pass the word to your fellow Mets fans' friends, that'd be uh, great. So I want to thank Chris Kamaj for the mailbag. And our buddy Jeff Cohen um, you sent me a, 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 a little... Uh, and by the way, if you want to listen to Jeff, he's his own podcast, uh, Baseball and Barbecue. So Jeff, on the Baseball and Barbecue, maybe one day I'll get you on to give me some barbecuing tips. It's too cold now, but my problem with barbecuing, Jeff, is that I'm only a well-done guy. Like a well-done... And I, I like it that way. I don't I don't make it a, a I don't make it charcoal, but I could well done it. I can't do medium rare, and I certainly can't do rare. I always seem to overcook it. So maybe you give me some barbecue tips. But anyway, uh, from Jeff Cohen, should we Mets fans be concerned about Steve Cohen's past, indiscretions, insider trading, etc.? Even though not indicated, be of any concern to MLB owners to approve his Mets ownership? He paid 1.8 billion in fines and penalties, but was never brought up on any criminal charges. I would think the players in their union of those no. Se- I think the players in the union have no say as have no say as to who owns the team and would welcome an owner in New York who's not named Wilpon. A free spending New York billionaire is just about what this franchise needs. Um, very, you know, look, uh, the the world is progressive now. I think Rob Manfred's is much more progressive person than uh, Bud Selig ever was. Uh, I think Steve Cohen's money is going to dictate whether they want him or not. I mean, he's a minority owner. I don't know the rules, and I might probably should look this up about how minority owner getting approved. How does that translate to majority? Will Ponds probably should have been out. We know that if they really wanted to, uh, Bud Selig really wanted to let them hang dry. There's been far worse owners in this business than uh, Steve Cohen will be. And I think if we dived into what goes on in a lot of these other ownership groups, I'm not quite sure you would feel that great. If you want to make a lot of money 
and you want to play at the deep end of the pool, especially in the Wall Street world, it's not always uh, fun and games. You're not going to be St. Teresa. Uh, the financial sector, I've had friends who worked in it, very unhealthy. There are things that probably aren't things that when you look at the sauces made that make you feel good. But that's the way that that industry works. That's the deep end of the pool of accountability and, and achievement and uh, work ethic. And, and, and there's basically a lot of different ways uh, that you could go out and, and win in that. And sometimes you skirt the rules or play on the, the fence. But I think you can make that argument that there's a lot of people who may be playing on the fence, including the guys across town when it comes to how they do their business dealing. So uh, I'm not sure it should matter. Uh, I think that the media will start to look for ways to make him look because of where he's from in terms of that industry, make him look bad. Uh, if you want to watch the show Billions, it's loosely uh, based off of Jeff Cohen. Uh, Jeff Cohen, Steve Cohen. I'm sorry, Jeff, I'm getting the Cohens all mixed up here. Jeff Cohen's the mailbag. Steve Cohen is the is the owner. And um, you can get a feel of who you're dealing with here. And I'll tell you what, if you haven't watched that show, if, if Steve Cohen's... Thirty percent or forty percent of who Bobby Axelrod is in that show—you gotta get yourself a real fun owner and a real fun ride that you gotta buckle up for. So it should be interesting, uh, nonetheless. But hope you enjoyed the show. A good way to kick off the winter meetings. Like I said, uh, they're gonna be some reaction shows. I'll see what I could do in terms of guests. Uh, right now, the the plan is probably to come back to you sometime on Tuesday, unless something really, really big happens, which would be a shorter reaction show. And then maybe have another podcast on the way out Thursday, Friday, going into the weekend. We'll see how how imperative it is for that. You know, maybe wait till the weekend. Not sure how I'll play that, but stay tuned for another edition of the Talking Mets podcast this week. We'll have our our eyes glued to Twitter. We'll be listening to the radio, the t- television, seeing what goes on. I think that again, like I said, it's going to be an active winter meeting. I think the Mets are going to be more about the surrounding roster and a less sexy move than being about winning the uh, offseason. And, and remember, just because you, you have a good offseason and you win the offseason does not mean that there there is any indication that those teams are ahead of the curve when it comes to winning uh, during the 2020 campaign. A lot, of, a lot of things happen between now and opening day. A lot of things happen over the course of 162 games. Hey, I want to thank Kirk McKnight for joining me. You can check him out on Twitter, at The Voices of MLB, and check out his book about Dale Murphy, Batting Clean. I want to thank you, the listeners. Of course, if you want to send me a mailbag to be read on this show, MikeSilva at TalkinMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet, at MikeSilvaMedia. And the best way to consume this podcast is through Apple Podcasts. I'd greatly appreciate it if you could leave me a review. We're, uh, we're, we're climbing up there. 4.5, I believe, out of 5. We want to get that as close to 5 as possible because the more that people see this podcast and the more that they see that's doing well, I think the more that they'll try it and hopefully we get a bigger following. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast very soon. Take care, everybody.
Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.